Okay, hello and welcome to the first BizInc Painpoint podcast. I'm delighted to have with me Kim Roach, who is a product ambassador for BizInc, and also Steve Major, our first guest from Pricing Power. Hi, Steve. Hi, Kim. Morning, Matt. Yeah, morning, both of you, and it's uh, great to be on the first podcast. Yeah, thanks, Steve. No, I really appreciate you coming along. Um, um, it'd be great if you could just give a little introduction to yourself and, and Pricing Power, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So I'm a chartered accountant, uh, or as I like to say, a recovering accountant. Um, <laughs> I had I had my own practice for a number of years here in uh, Queensland, Australia, and um, I sold it in 2006, end of 2006, um, to basically focus on working with professional service firms, predominantly accountants, on building you know, great businesses. And a key part of that has been helping them move to a value pricing uh, methodology and and to get rid of the timesheets and position themselves uh, so that they have a, a brand in the marketplace. So that's what pricing power is all about. Awesome. Oh, that's great. Well, um, I guess um, a good place to, to start our discussion would be um, a lot of the firms we work with publish pricing packages on their websites. Um, and I'd certainly say that's been a trend in accounting websites over the last um, four or five years. Um, and I just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on that, really. Is it a good thing? Should they be doing that? Should they not be doing it? So uh, I don't hold back on my opinions. And uh, on this one, I'm very definite. I think it's absolutely wrong. Um, and I'll give a little bit more context on that. I think professional firms, accountants have a phenomenal opportunity to price the customer. It doesn't mean that we don't have a three or four or you know, a very small number of key offerings from a behind-the-scenes point of view mm-hmm. that we have, but we customise those down to a final three and present that final three then to the prospective customer and price it accordingly, price it to that customer. So we can still get all the efficiency benefits of having a limited number of defined service offerings, which is the oftentimes the prime motivator, but we still keep the very incredible pricing uh, aspect that we should as a professional keep, and that is the ability to price the customer uh, to we're in the relationship business and we need to understand the exact situation that that customer is in and exactly what we can do for them and price it accordingly. So as soon as we start trying to uh, just put three packages on our website and too often they'll price two of them and put on the third price on application or some other nonsense. And I just think you lose all of that potential to price the customer and you don't gain anything from doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the POA, definitely, because um, I think that's a deterrent for people to call you. I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm just a really cynical person, but I always find POA kind of scary. I always think that's going to be expensive, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of accounting firms have probably adopted this, put three packages on the website from the software as a service companies. Yeah, and you know, and, and accountants are using a raft of technology. So they're buying these uh, services and seeing the three packages on their on their websites and choosing the package appropriate. And they think that that model looks good. 
Um, but it's a model that's entirely appropriate for a software business. It's just not a model that is appropriate for a professional firm that is in the relationship game. Yeah, right. So we got a question sent in by uh, Ben Dangle, and he asked, okay, well, can or should you show packages on your website but not have the rates on there? So I guess that's the POA model. Um, I, I think what he's meaning is is it sensible to show example packages or do you think there's no value in that either? I I wouldn't have example packages and I wouldn't have three packages with, with no prices on it. Um, but I would have on the website – as I'm sure that you would be telling your clients at Bizink to talk about what you can do, but not talk about it in, you know, package A has A, B, C, D, E, and and package B has all of that plus F, G, H or whatever. Um, but talk about what you can do and what results you can deliver to a customer and how you can transform customers. And, you know, it could be done by way of case studies. It could be done by... Um, stories of examples of working with particular customers, but don't do it by way of showing three packages. Customize the package, tailor the package to the customer and price it accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Steve, um, I was uh, part of a webinar recently where I uh, practice was presenting and they have a section on their website uh, you know, under the business advisory tab, you know, outcomes by design. So is there is there a way that you can um, do value pricing online or, or how would you suggest that they do uh, get that on their website in a format that does make the client want to engage, I guess? Okay, so I think that I'll just go back a, a step because, and I think this hopefully will answer that, a couple of these questions in one is, we need to think about a, either an alignment process or an onboarding process. So if we've, through the various activities we've done, the website, et cetera, position the firm as having a set of expertise in a, in a chosen area so that then the people that are looking at it are already starting that, that self-selection aspect that, you know, if this firm is only specialising in, I don't know, I'll I'll just say um, pharmacies, then that is, you know, the people who aren't pharmacies are automatically not going to continue. But then just say that um, a pharmacist looking at it and thinking about the accountant, then there's some way of starting the interaction process to learn more. And it's that process that we need to think through and map out. And you can use, obviously, as part of the website, you could have a a form that they fill out. Maybe, you know, I personally use a service called Typeform, but whatever the form is that, uh, obviously, I'm, I'm speaking to people who do this for a business, but um, they have some form of process that's in place to start the engagement and gathering the information. Us as accountants, we sometimes want to rush this and we want to just get people in so we can start billing them. And the reality is we need to go through these steps and have a value conversation and gather the information, present a proposal with three options and prices accordingly. So I know as a long-winded answer to your question, but I'm, I'm going, I think we need to look at that overall process from when the, the person is starting to be interested in our services 
all the way to you know committing to a particular package of that we have and committing to a price and and there needs to be that needs to be mapped out and it, and it needs to take time we can't rush it we've got to take the time to understand the client and understand what we can do for the client and present the outcome for the client i think sometimes that's possibly what we don't do well we present what we can do but the client sometimes might walk away not fully understanding what they're going to get out of that oh, i couldn't agree more i think um i think there's three conversations that need to happen or a minimum of one is that, and, and this can be done whether it's face-to-face or using technology, um, that you have the first conversation, which is just questions. You're just learning all about the business that you're talking to. Then the next conversation is, you could use a word like demo even, that you're starting to explore solutions that possibly what you can do for the client and you're garnering even more information but also reaction. And then the third conversation is when you actually then present, you know, the three options and gain commitment to the to the process thereafter. Um, and that might sound, you know, lengthy and involved, but uh, we're in a relationship, and I keep coming back to that, we're in a relationship business, we're building a relationship for the long term, it's got to be carefully thought through the start of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because um, there's obviously a drive to automate everything and make everything software-based, but, uh, you know, I think there's well, – relationship is the right word. There's some things that just rely on human interaction. Um, you know, the example on our own website, we, we used to have pricing there. We took that off um, and, and have a – the call to action is to get people to engage with a, an online, well, it is a demo really, but we, we talk about outcomes and things like that during that. And I personally don't think there's any way we could do that in, an, in a more automated or kind of software-based way. Um, quite interested though, have you seen, um, there's a new tool that Sage have brought out called Sage Value, which is um, specifically for um engaging clients around value pricing uh, interesting to get your thoughts on that or any other kind of um software tools that can be used to i guess streamline that engagement process so just before i enter on the sage value um i will talk about software uh, and tools total firstly um we've got to remember <laughs> that accountants are providing some form of insight, some form of knowledge to their clients. And that's the real value, um, not what particular tool that they might choose to use. And I think we need to view the tools that we use as how can we use the best tool to deliver that set of outcomes for a client, whether it's zero, whether it's, you know, I used, mentioned type form, whether it's uh, any other particular tool, Receipt Bank, all the rest of them, and there's a lot of fantastic tools. It's not that I'm anti-tool. I'm saying that the real value of the relationship with the customer is the insight, and we can't ever forget that aspect. And the tool is only that. It is just part of the suite of tools that we use to provide that insight to a client. And so on the Sage Value 
tool. I think it's fantastic. Now, I've known a little bit about the backstory, so I'm probably just a little bit biased. Uh, Ron Baker and Ed Kless of the Verisage uh, group, of which I'm part of, which is a think tank dedicated to uh, transforming the accounting industry to get rid of uh, timesheets and implement value pricing. Well, Ron and Ed have had a significant impact into the design uh, being consulted heavily on the design of Sage Value. And the key thing about Sage Value is it's not a prescriptive um, give you here is the price that you should be charging. It it provokes the questions and the conversations and helps to make certain that the firm goes through that that process of asking questions and understanding value. And then there's some, you know, here's some templates and shortcuts to help you put together uh, proposals and so forth that are that are aligned to that value mindset so yeah sage value i think is is a fantastic tool and um, i would recommend people to to have a look at it but i do want to just keep coming back to that point that there's a whole suite of tools that we can utilize we need to think of the whole process and always remember that we're providing insight uh, just going uh, back to, like you said, the relationship and the onboarding process, whether it you know be face-to-face or via a form, have you got any tips have, for someone who, myself, has been in business pr- uh, previously and you'll get some quite savvy clients where you really, uh, they almost sell themselves to you and you believe they're going to be great clients and then as the as the relationship moves on, they start to become quite labour-intensive or um, uh, painful from a data point of view, et cetera. Have you got any tips or tricks when they're going through that onboarding process to try and uh, trigger those clients that uh, may not be uh, as great as they're selling themselves to you to be? So you're always – the whole onboarding process and why I'm saying it should take some time – is so that you can keep asking questions to get to to some of those, um, you know, un- unveil some of those potential negative issues that might pop up. Uh, and it's always mindful to have a look at their behaviour through it. And I know in a way it's a bad analogy, but in a way it's a good analogy. And that is this process is, you know, it could be, said to be a bit like the dating process. If you rush at it, well, who knows, mistakes can happen. But if you take it slow, then both sides will you know, learn each other. And that's the whole point here is that we need to, to not rush at this and, and to make certain there's enough roadblocks in, in, in essence in place that by the time the client comes on board, we've pretty well eliminated the chance of having uh, that situation now you'll never totally you know i'm not a i wish the world was easy but it's never totally but little things are often a good indicator and one that i've found in working with firms and setting up this process is if at one of the stages you ask them to fill out whether it's online or via email whatever a form and they don't fill it all out listen to why they don't it's often a really good insight into their commitment to working with an accountant or working with a professional. Um, and so there's some of these little things that we need to just, you know, they're like little red flags that, you know, four or five of them go, hang on a minute, this client might 
might be a pain. They want us to do everything, and yet it's actually some of their responsibility. Um, the one thing that you did mention that I do want to pick on in, in a little more detail, though, is the debtor situation. When you price up front or when you put a proposal, you price up front, you can by and large nearly eliminate that debtor problem. Not totally, but because you then either move them into a monthly commitment straight off the bat or you move them into a, you know, a certain percentage up front plus a percentage on the way through. Now, if they in any way resist that, then I wouldn't take them on as a client because you're already getting a really good indication that money yeah. is going to be an issue. So it's one of the things you, you can eliminate in those series of conversations by going, this is how we price. We price it up front. The terms are, you know, every month X dollars or 50% up front, whatever the magic formula is for your firm. And that often gets those conversations out of the way. And if they start to react to that, and question and try to do different ways of doing it, well, then usually that's a pretty big red flag to go, hang on a minute. Yeah. I, I think another thing is um, going back to value. Um, often, any professional relationships, people often look at the, the dollars at the end of it rather than, um, you know, is this a good relationship? So I think looking at it from the point of view of can we actually deliver value to this business? is super important rather than just they could pay us X dollars per month. Um, you know, there's got to be that good fit on both sides. And I think often firms can be too keen to take on new clients. Totally agree. And everything's got to be through the filter of value. Everything that we do. A question that I like people to think about, um, just in a provocative sense, even a, a, you know around the lunchroom, have a chat and get thoughts from everybody is what value would we have to add to be able to double our prices? It's not saying we're going to double our prices. It's starting the mindset of going, what value would we have to add? What would we have to do better? What would we have to do different? What would we have to do? And then the customers would have no drama paying double the price. And it just as starts the, the thought processes going of, you know, maybe if we added this or did that or did this a bit quicker or whatever it might be. But it starts the, that mindset internally of how we can constantly improve. And that's also interesting to the point of view of how many clients you could afford to lose if you did double or, you know, add a third to your prices or whatever. Um, they're the clients that you then want to work with. They'll tend to be more profitable. So... I think that is a very interesting kind of um, exercise to look at. Well, I've that been does, on the... Yeah, yeah that sorry. does come back to... Uh, I did a presentation to a practice recently and there was talking about a lot of areas that they deal with within the practice and, and it was about outsourcing some of the areas that they don't do, which is implementations of software. And their concern... Their, their concern was the client, uh, whoever they outsource that to, oh, they may steal my client. And I, it came back to you should have more confidence in the value you're providing for your client. You're obviously not touching the client enough if you're concerned that they're very quickly going to move away. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more that that's usually uh, 
if you're so worried about it that they are, then just up your game and provide more value. Yeah, which I think they a lot of practices want to do. They're a little bit at the stage where they're being told they have to do it. They need a little bit of a help on well, how more so than they know what they need to do. Yes, I'd, I'd agree with that. And the biggest thing that most firms struggle with, and I was on the on a call this morning with a, a firm uh, about that they used to have just over 2,000 clients. This is a firm with three offices through um, regional Australia, and now they're down to 650 clients. Now, it was very intentional, but their revenue has doubled. Yeah, and it's 80, because <laughs> it's Exactly. It's working out exactly what they're good at, what they're interested in, what they want to do, and then narrowing their focus. And that is the first and biggest step um, to providing value is not trying to be all things to all people. Mm. Um, I had a question sent in by uh, Brian Katzen. Um, he's put all of his clients oh, – sorry, he puts all of his new clients onto fixed fees. Um, but he's asking if you have any suggestions about converting his existing long-standing clients over to fixed fees. Yeah, and this is always, you know, the what we could call legacy clients are always the toughest clients. They're used to the old you, so to speak, and and now the the new you, uh, they're um, they're going well. Why do I need to change or whatever? It's all worked fine for the last however long. Um, so they are they're always the toughest. The first thing to do though is work out whether you want to keep all of those. Oftentimes there's a certain percentage that really you shouldn't be worrying about. So the first thing is is look at that. But then getting down to um, converting long-standing ones, what I've often worked with firms to do is that they have a, a proper conversation. And when I say proper conversation, a detailed, not just a five-minute one, but a a decent conversation, whether it's face-to-face or using technology, and they go through exactly what their business model now is, and they provide three options. Um, You probably have heard me say it once or twice about providing options, and one of the options might well be the existing arrangement, um, but with the changed payment terms. So it's certainly not time-based billing. I would always say get rid of that. So it's fixed, but a change room. And then the other two options are more in a line with where they want to take the business. So you're slowly transitioning the, the old clients across to the new methodology. You can't just draw a line in the sand and say, you know, everybody, you've got to change or else. Well, very rarely can you do that. Um, but, uh, but it needs, it takes that conversation. We can't, we can't make assumptions and we need to spend a couple of hours going through with a client why things have changed, what we're doing now and presenting them with uh, options for the future. Would you uh, recommend the firm then if, – so if you're going to perhaps be getting rid of some clients, um, have, a, have an alternative firm they can go to, create that relationship and then – you know, obviously that firm's going to be pretty happy to get some referrals and, and possibly that comes back with the more specialised clients that you're then trying to target. So, so, yes, I always think um, you should – we are in a relationship and you want to keep your um, reputation out there, so you don't want to be your, 
you know, nasty about it or anything. So if you can go, look, we just aren't any more able to do your work, but, you know, firm X down the road, here are their details. Person X at that firm is, you know, more than happy to talk to you about your situation, whatever the process, but having an alternative is definitely um, recommended. I have seen some firms try to sell a portion. I haven't seen that work very well. I've actually seen it work far better where there is a, somebody else who's more than happy to take on that type of client and it just helps the relationship mm. um, aspect further. And particularly that's the case, um, particularly in regional centres around um, the world, but um, it still is the same in, in the bigger cities. So I think um, rather than trying to sell off a portion, I personally think um, recommend them to somebody. And I think then as well, you know, I'd be looking at that and thinking, okay, we're going to lose this, whatever, 10% of clients, but um, there's still people who could refer other businesses to, to us. And so I think it's really important to look after them, you know, like most firms are regional and that that kind of like restore, keeping your reputation, I think is super important. Yes, Absolutely. Just um, as part of the, like you say, the presentation of the value that you can add to a client, uh, particularly in Australia, our compliance requirements are quite a bit higher than other areas of the world. Um, and how do you present because to the client without it sounding like uh, that you're totally complaining about the industry? The re- explain to them that what the requirements are to maintain their tax agents register, you know, and be a CPA and be a chartered, and you know, so that they can actually do that quality work uh, that possibly the client isn't really all that interested in, but uh, it, it does play a huge part in the time spent to uh, complete the work. Um. <laughs> I don't think you do explain it. And I know, and please let me explain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm chartered and uh, you know, I know what was involved to keep that. I uh, used to practice here in Australia. Um, I'm, I'm certainly by no means up to date now, but I knew what was involved and I know from my clients what's involved in just keeping up to date with legislation. And it's huge. There's a lot of work required to just be on top of, you know, staying still, not necessarily um, being yeah. right out there, just just maintaining bare minimum. There's a, there's a lot of work. But we've got to keep coming back to what's of value to the client. And um, we've got to understand everything must be through that filter. So the fact that we've got to, as a practicing accountant, keep up with the legislation, all the rest, that's just the table stakes. That just gets us to the starting point. Every firm has got the exact same and every client basically is not going to worry about it. So we've got to go the other way and find out what they do, they are concerned about. And there's obviously, there's no even from the compliance, there is a peace of mind aspect that every client wants. They don't, yeah, sure, some of them will want to push the envelope and have the latest and greatest tax plan, but that's 99 out of 100 don't. They want an element of peace of mind. So we've got to understand that aspect of it. But they've also 
what else is important to that client and we need to drill down into that and often it's the little things and the biggest one of them all is communication it's the fact that the client knows exactly where the work's at what's happening what time frame all of those little things and being able to talk to the accountant when they need to bounce something past them or send them email whatever um it's that access aspect it's um being available and and uh and communicating is often the the real value and we see as a technically as the qualified person we see the value in keeping up to date with all the tax changes they see the value in i know exactly where things are at yeah and it probably comes back to that onboarding process and working out if the client uh during that process that the client values that you are just automatically going to have that knowledge and that there's a, a you know requirement there to maintain that and it possibly is part of that onboarding process. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I think um, – sorry, Matt. I'll, no, you go. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, one of the ones that is often the biggest frustration point and it's so easily solved is when the client, particularly pre-cloud or even now where um, – there's still the you know the the accountant has access to the ledger, but um, is that the client says, well, the accountant's got the work or sends the work in or sends an email and says, you know, right now to do the end of the year, and asks a question, you know, how long, and the accountant answers that question and says, oh, that should take us, you know, a month, four weeks, so. It's now um, October and the client has sent that email. So he's expecting the work back in November. But the accountant's four weeks was how long the work would take, not the time frame of completion. And they answer the question from two different angles. So when he sends the work back in February, he thinks everything's fine. And the client go, hang on a minute, why did it take you so long? And because one answered deadline and one answered duration. And it's little communication things like that that are always often the most frustrating from a client's point of view and yet are so easy answered from the accountant. So Yeah, yeah. Manage the expectation and communicate during the process, not just six months later, turn up with a set of financials and be quite proud to produce that. <laughs> exactly. I, I think the other thing is um I was talking to a chartered accountant in, in New Zealand and he was moaning about another firm who were very successful saying, oh, they produce rubbish accounts and they're a rubbish firm. And I was like, but they do pretty well. And I said, yeah, the reality is that most of their clients would not know the difference between, you know, good, bad or indifferent set of accounts. I mean, you know, as, as long as they're, they're kind of accurate, um, it, it, that's not where the assessment can be made. The, the the clients, I don't think, have the financial wherewithal to to make that assessment. So actually, it does come down to how that service is delivered, rather than you know, actually this What's kind of. Delivered? Well, often I don't think people are even look at the accounts, do they? You know, they might go in a drawer or something. But you know, um, it's all those little questions round them as they get get you know get made. I think that's really important. And. I know we've been talking about the death of compliance for the last, you know, 10 years and it hasn't happened. Accountants 
in Australia, New Zealand, I think, or particularly Australia, are as busy as ever doing compliance. But it's pretty easy to look at what's happening out there that there's no doubt that that is changing. Absolutely no doubt the compliance fees are decreasing. That's crystal clear. Um, but also with various pieces of technology, um, you know, receipt banking to zero all the and all the other bits and pieces that you can have, and I'll just pick on zero, but you could talk about QuickBooks or any of them, um, that that compliance aspect is getting less and less. And I think accountants will get less and less as there's more automation. And the real value that we um, bring to the client is actually the insight side of things, not the logic side of things. And we see the logic as incredibly valuable. The client sees what does this mean to me as the value. Absolutely. Um, hopefully you've got time for one more question, which is um, uh, another one from Brian. And he says he's heard of firms who've gone 100% fixed fee and they say they no longer t- keep timesheets. Um, is this a good or bad idea and what's the best practice? So um, I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> you preface that by have we got time? And I'm sure you preface that because you know, Matt, that I'd love to give an hour answer to this one. <laughs> um, get rid but, of timesheets. But time not, measure the, not measure the hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Get rid of timesheets. They're the real cancer in the profession. Um, they create a whole set of behaviors that are not focused on value. Um, to put it in one way, a timesheet is all about utilization of a mythical number called time. Um, if we are to think that, you know, just say one hour, uh, we all know that if we come into the office, you know, tomorrow morning and we have a sit down and, you know, some days we'll come in and we'll just be on fire, be able to do a heap. The next day we might come in and we, for whatever reason, we're struggling through and what the day before took us half the time, you know, double the time the next day. And yet a timesheet assumes each hour is exactly the same, which of course it's not. So a timesheet is all about utilization, but really what we want in a firm is everything around accountability. And we want to give our team accountability, accountability for this set of tasks, accountability for this set of clients, this outcome being done by this period of time. So get rid of the timesheet and move towards a more project management approach and an accountability focus rather than a utilization focus. It's the best thing that you can ever do. And um, recently there was a survey in the United States, just over 2,500 firms. The firms without timesheets are 19% more profitable. Okay, that's fun. That's fascinating, yeah. So get rid of them. Brilliant. Well, listen, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Um, thanks so much, Steve and, and Kim. Um, what I'm going to do is when the podcast goes live, um, your details will be, be on there, Steve, if anyone wants to um, get in touch and find out more about value pricing, getting rid of the timesheet and, and how you could help um, them with that. Um, so, yeah, thanks again for coming along. And, um, yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Steve. Thank you.